Lord, as we open your word, uh, we need clarity of mind. Lord, make us like you who lived moment by moment with the reality of eternity, people's eternity on the forefront of your mind, and um, you were not afraid to warn people, and you even shed tears as you did so. Uh, So Lord, I pray that you would make us like you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are, finishing up Matthew chapter 23. And uh, Jesus has been blasting the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of his day, for their empty religion. And we come to the very end of Matthew 23. And let me just read through the text. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So uh, they had the tombs of some of the prophets there in Jerusalem, and they would decorate them. And they would pay homage to the great prophets, and they would say as they're doing it, now our forefathers stoned them. If we were alive back then, we wouldn't do it. And then Jesus goes on and he says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Um, Basically, he's saying, I know you're going to kill me. And while you decorate the tombs of the prophets, you are the descendants of the murderers of the prophets. And that's what you're going to do to me. And then here's the key. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. We're going to talk about what that means. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Then he goes on. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel, first person to be murdered on the planet, to the blood of Zechariah, toward the end of the Old Testament uh, era, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. The blood of, of the righteous from A to Z, you could say. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, if you just stopped right there, you would say, what a blistering sermon, condemning them to hell again and again and again. But look how it ends. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. little picture of a of, uh, cute little chicken <laughs> gathering the little chicks. Come here, Mama saying, I want to take care of you. Please come to me. But you would not. 
compassion. See, your house is left to you desolate. The temple, the temple will be, it's empty now and it will be destroyed in 70 A.D. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now's your chance to believe you're not going to see me until I return 2,000 years later. All right. Now, um, to give you the bigger context in Matthew 23. Remember, here's what he says. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You make him, your convert, twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, blind fools, blind men. Inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He damns them to hell. But then, this statement of tenderness. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. You know, um, some of you see me running down by the river. I scare children and mothers and it's not really running, it's more here comes old limping ox again. All right, um, But all the geese now uh, have had their babies. And there's these little fuzzy, they're not cute, they're ugly, but they're, they don't have feathers, they have fur. And there's mama, mama goose, and they're all following along, and come on, come on. And uh, uh, Jesus is, is saying, I want you to come under my wing. In fact, in another place, uh, in Luke's gospel, it says this, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. There's a balance here. Jesus spoke of hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He is the judge who will send people to hell. We are told in the book of Revelation that they will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb for eternity. He is the sentencer. He is the one who sends them to hell. He is the one who punishes them for eternity, and he is the one who weeps over them as they go to hell. All this to say, Christ's wrath and his compassion are not contradictory. Some people say, well, Jesus wept over people going to hell and he pled with people going to hell. He would never send anybody to hell. And then there are others who are, oh, it's Jesus, fire and brimstone all the time, and there's no compassion. Why do those two things have to be contradictory? He sentences people to hell, and he weeps over people going to hell. Here's what I want to explore today. Three really profound concepts all tied up in this passage. Okay? And I, I want to make sure we, we master these concepts, because... To get them, it gives you the full picture of who our God is. All right? So, first of all, let's talk about this concept of filling up the measure of sin. 
Um, you know, he says, you, you're the, the descendants of the murderer of the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. What does that mean? There's a measure of how much sin God will patiently endure. Go ahead now, kill me. And that will be the final filling up of the measure of sin. And then my wrath will come. So on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Again, um, your killing of me will be the final straw and my wrath will be unleashed. And then in 70 AD, a million Jews were slaughtered as the Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem, burned down the temple, God's wrath was poured out. Um, This concept of filling up the measure. Let me show you another verse. In Genesis, God promises Abraham that he's going to give Abraham and his descendants the land. But not now. Not now. He says, and they, your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation. So 400 years. I'm promising this land to you now, but they're going to go down to Egypt first for 400 years and then they'll come back and wipe out the people in this land. Well, why don't you give us the land now? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The bucket of the Amorites' sin is not yet filled. So, just to get this in our mind, this is not a magic trick, okay? This is just a picture of this as a container of sin, right? In hundreds and hundreds of years, in another generation, pours their sin in. And another generation pours their sin in. And here's the final generation. That's it. That's enough. And God's wrath will come. That's the picture. Okay? Watch me short out everything here. Be careful when you go by there. Now, how fair is it that one generation gets the punishment for a whole bunch of other generations' sin. In fact, the, the, the Jews who were in Babylonian exile asked that question. They were saying, that's not fair. We're being punished. The Babylonians came in and destroyed us. We're being punished for our father's sin. In fact, God addresses this in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb? So they had a little proverb they were saying concerning the land of Israel. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. 
It's not fair. Our parents ate the sour grapes, but our teeth are crooked because of, the, uh, of what they did. And God comes back and he says, As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all the souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. You are not being punished for your father's sin. You're being punished as a nation for your own sin. Now you say, wait a minute. How do these two thoughts go together? Ezekiel 18, you're being punished for your own sin. Matthew 23, generations and generations of sin are finally being filled up and God unleashes his wrath. Well, again, there's a limit to how much sin a nation can engage in before God pours out his wrath. And at any point, God could have justly let his wrath flow, but it's pure mercy that it hadn't flown until then. All right? But when it does happen... There's no ground for complaint. Let me give you an example. In 1973, this country, the United States of America, made killing babies in the womb legal. And we've averaged about a million babies a year for 40 years. In 1973, a million babies were killed. If God decided to pour his wrath upon the country in 1973, it would have been perfectly fair but we got mercy. In 1974, a million babies were killed. We deserved wrath. We got mercy. In 1975, a million babies were killed. We deserve wrath. We got mercy. I, I won't do this for all 40 years. right? This year, one million babies are being legally killed. Now, if ours is the generation where God destroys America, we have no right to say, unfair! We're being punished for our father's sins when we continue to put people in office who fight to keep the killing of babies, to fight to keep that legal. God were to wipe us off the map, we have no right to complain. We're being punished. No. We haven't done anything to stop it, have we? Speaking of Ezekiel, and you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me, and these you sacrificed to them to false idols to be devoured. Were your, whorings no, were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? So will I satisfy my wrath on you. Killing babies brings the wrath of God on a nation. Filling up Filling up, filling up. At some point, that's it. And we have no right to complain. 
if we end up like Israel. You know, there was uh, another father of this nation who said this, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Who said that? Thomas Jefferson. He was talking about slavery. And, you know, there are those who say, um, well, Jefferson was a deist, so he never would have said anything like that. It's kind of hard to argue when that's on the Jefferson Memorial etched into the, the granite there in Washington, D.C. Okay? Now, let me say this. We can talk about the sin of abortion or homosexuals being married. or you know, We can talk about all of that. But you know what the other sin was that Israel engaged in? that brought the ultimate wrath of God? Apathy. Utter apathy. Jesus shows up, and he spends most of his time, not down south in Jerusalem, but up here around the Sea of Galilee. And he goes from town to town to town, and he does miracles. And here are these three towns up north, uh, Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida. Uh, he he, He was raised in Nazareth, but when he started his ministry... He relocated here to Capernaum, and uh, that probably, probably lived in Peter's house in Capernaum, and uh, did multitudes of miracles. The Sermon on the Mount was preached up here, and here's the result. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, where I live, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom was more righteous than Capernaum. Well, were they wicked? No. No. Just bored. You know, right now, um, the statistics are 50% of Americans don't even go to church. But of the 50% who do go, right now in the Fox Valley, only 19% are actually in church. So you get to be called a churchgoer if you go about once a month. So 81% are still in bed or on the golf course. God just doesn't really interest me. So Jesus curses Chorazin for their apathy. And when you say, Pastor, what most struck you when you went to Israel? Chorazin did. There it is today. It's the ancient ruins of a synagogue. That's Ian. That's Josh. There's nothing there. There's a bus parking lot. Other than that, nothing there. And here, a headstone. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And I don't know that the people of Israel even know what, what's going on there. Yeah, we looked up the word Chorazin in the Bible and we'll put it on this. 
It's a living example of fulfilled prophecy of how apathy brings the wrath of God on a nation. So, the first concept that I think we need to tremble over is the concept of filling up the measure of sin before God's wrath pours out on a nation. Second thing I want us to get. The twofold purpose of the gospel. The twofold purpose of the gospel. Now, look at this. You need to follow this. You guys awake? A little sleepy today, aren't we? Come on. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, he's just condemned them to hell, but now I want you to see two connective words. I want you to see the word therefore and the words so that. Whenever the word therefore is there, you ask what's the therefore therefore, right? So this next thing is going to connect what follows to what precedes. He's just condemned them to hell. Therefore... I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So wait a minute. I'm sentencing you to hell. You would think he would keep the gospel away from them. No. I'm sentencing you to hell, and here's what I'm going to do to seal your fate. I'm going to send you wise men and prophets and scribes, And you know what you're going to do? You're going to reject the gospel and you're going to kill them. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. There's a twofold purpose of proclaiming the gospel. To save some and to damn others. Where do you hear that? You don't hear that anywhere except in the Bible. If you were to ask Jesus, what does successful proclamation of the gospel look like? He would say, it will save some, there will be radical life change in some, and it will infuriate others. It will damn them, and their damnation will flare up through anger and persecution and even killing people. If you were to ask most churchgoers today, what should a successful gospel-preaching church look like, you would hear, nobody should be upset. It should not produce any division. It should be done in such a way that people get saved, and even those who don't are happy as a lark. Think about this. It is not possible for a gospel that upsets no one to save anyone either. It's not possible for a bland gospel that upsets no one. Can that gospel save anyone? Here's MacArthur said this. Today's gospel is so bland the non-elect don't even know to reject it. So we have... Churches filled with people who are never upset. Well, now they may be upset with the leaders, the parking, the curriculum, the color of the car, things that don't matter. But rarely do people walk out of a out of a sermon going, oh, that infuriated me. 
Because it's so nice. And it's part of a strategy. A well-thought-through strategy to keep you coming back, whether you're saved or not. Because after all, after attending for 20 or 30 years, maybe you might get saved if we just keep it nice enough. You know, you've heard the term seeker-sensitive. I call it unbeliever-sensitive church. Let's run everything through the mind of the unbeliever. How will it affect him? And you know what? There's some wisdom in that. If you're talking about the greeters and the bulletins and the the aesthetics and things, you know, that's fine. But when it comes to the message, you are not allowed to mess with God's gospel. The true gospel will save some, and the way you see that is by radical obedience. The life has changed. And it will infuriate others. So let me ask you, is the gospel really being proclaimed today in most churches? Well, we found a better way to do it, better than Jesus. Wow, that's pretty good. I told you about the church in Florida that we go to sometimes where their, their, their vision statement is, we exist to give you a pleasant spiritual experience, sing some songs before you go to the beach. Translated, we're here to tickle your ears on your way to the beach and eventually to hell. We know you're on vacation. We wouldn't want to ruin your afternoon with anything dramatic like your eternal destiny. So let's sing some songs, give a nice devotional thought. You go to the beach and then go to hell. Folks, I think... I think we're in a time of testing. Worldwide and in this nation. We're coming to a time of testing. Now let me ask you a question. Do you want a church that equips you to A, go to the beach, or B, equips you to die for the gospel? What kind of a church do you want? One that equips you to go to the beach or die? That's that's a tough choice. And they have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How, How did these Christians overcome Satan? They loved not their lives even unto death. They conquered Satan by allowing themselves to die for Jesus. You know, it's funny how the, the, the big churches, they always go, oh, we're starting a new series. What if we, what if we said, we're starting a new series on how to die for Jesus. That'll bring them in, won't it? But what kind of a Christian are you? Are you a, I want to go get a nice message, then go to brunch? Glad you could make it. Thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Nice message, go to brunch, talk about what so-and-so was wearing, 
how this music could have been done a little differently. Oh, and that funny illustration, the pat. Are you going to be ready to die for Jesus when the testing comes? Are you preparing for that? All right. There's a twofold purpose of the gospel. And those who truly proclaim it, we will see radically saved people who are radically obedient, and we will see people who are not happy. Do you buy that that's the twofold purpose of the gospel, or have you found a better way to do it than Jesus? Right? Number three, third thing I want you to see compassion for the hellbound. He tells them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And then, how often I've gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing. And you would not. You're going to hell, but I want you to come to me. Come under my wing. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. You know, today people want a cause to give their life to. And there's a lot of noble causes. You know, I, I think stopping human trafficking, I mean, these three girls who were kidnapped in Ohio, and that monster kept them in his house? We should stop that. Feed my starving children. There's the ladies yesterday went to, to, um, to work with the, the homeless women in Aurora. There's political activity you can get involved in. There's doctors without borders, nurses without borders. There's Go to Africa and dig ditches. There's a lot of great things that we can do to alleviate people's suffering. But the greatest thing is to alleviate their eternal suffering. What could be greater than to save people from experiencing the eternal wrath of God. I want to recruit you to join the greatest cause on the planet. It's not cancer. It's, I even mentioned abortion earlier. It's not even abortion, stopping abortion. Those are all great, and I'm not saying don't be involved in those. I'm saying if you really care about people, and you really care about their suffering, save them from going to hell. What could be greater? Now, first, you need to be convinced that hell is real. You know, when Rob Bell's book came out, Canceling Hell, you know why so many young Christians fell for it? They don't believe in hell. I don't know how many people... You know why? Because the church never talks about it anymore. It doesn't increase numbers. 
So we have a whole generation now who says, if I had to choose, I would pick a Jesus who doesn't send people to hell. What does Jesus teach, though? And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So you need to believe there is a hell. You need to believe that it's eternal. The worm doesn't die. That, the worm there is referring to the larva that infests the dead, rotting body. And the fire is not qu- It goes on forever and ever. Here in Revelation, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. Hell is real. It's eternal. And finally, you need to believe that hell is punishment. You know, we, we've, we, we're very careful in choosing our words today. And a, lot of, a lot of churches will talk about hell as eternal separation from God. Well, that sounds pretty good to some people. I don't pay any attention to him here on earth. Hey, for eternity, if he doesn't pay any attention to me, that's fine. No, it's not just eternal separation. It's eternal punishment. Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Revelation 20, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beasts and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You know, when you talk to people about where they go to church and ask them, you know, do you regularly hear about hell? And they say, no. Say this, let me guess. Does your pastor teach topical series? How did you know? You see, topical preaching and I, I believe there's a place for certain topical. You know, I mean, it's called systematic theology if it's done right. But when it's a constant stream of topical messages, yep, right out of the Bible, it is still the pastor choosing what he feels the congregation should hear. And he can edit out what he thinks they don't need to hear. And if the filter is, what's the unbeliever going to think? It becomes a subconscious thing. It's not even a purposeful thing. It's a subconscious thing where we're going to give them this topic and this topic and this topic that will draw in the masses that uh, will keep them coming, that will keep them interested right out of the Bible. But you can go for years without hearing about the sovereignty of God, the wrath of God. You know, Pastor, you seem to talk about it a lot. I'm just preaching the text. If, you know why I talk about it a lot? Take it up with Jesus. <laughs> he keeps bringing it up. Why? Because he cares enough about your eternal salvation to not tickle your ears.
Let me close with two quotes from two preachers. George Whitfield, back in the 1700s. George Whitfield stood in Boston Commons speaking to 20,000 people. And he said, listen, sinners, you're monsters. Monsters of iniquity. You deserve hell. And the worst of your crimes is that criminals, though you've been, you haven't had the good grace to see it. And he said, if you will not weep for your sins and your crimes against a holy God, George Whitfield will weep for you. And the author says, that man would put his head back and he would sob like a baby. 20,000 people, not repentant, and he wept over them like Jesus wept over Jerusalem. You know, uh, this whole Benghazi thing where four Americans were killed and the focus seems to be, well, what about the cover-up and the talking points and why are they trying to push this video uh, as opposed to was it really a terrorist activity? And, and that's all interesting. But in listening to some of the, the military analyze Benghazi for Americans, the question is, since when do we let Americans die without at least trying to rescue them. The policy is no man left behind. Now, if you're infuriated about that, have you done everything you can to not leave anyone behind, to not let anyone go to hell? Who in your circle of friends and family and influence doesn't understand the gospel. No man left behind. Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Here's what I want to do. Um, I'm going to have the worship team come up. Um, but I want to give you just a few moments and take out your bulletin. And would you just commune with God and write down the names of people that he brings to mind. And I don't, I don't mean rush out today and pray for them. Pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Maybe subtly, maybe in your face, maybe through Facebook, maybe through... E- you be creative in how you do it. But no man left behind. Right?